This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Good to see you on this, um, this lovely autumn morning. Um, yeah, so my name is Adam. I'm, I'm also called Stan, um, just to clarify things. Um, just as a way of introduction, I, um, you know, I, I, I'm part of this church. I've been part of this church for about 10 years now. Um, my, in, in my day job, I'm a teacher, uh, but I'm also part of this church and part of various teams which help uh, sort of lead this church onwards. And we have been in a series on the Book of Acts for the last few weeks, which has been fantastic. We're having a break for that for one week, and I've been given a free hit. I can speak on what I write, and so I've chosen the book, um, The Story of Lazarus, to teach on, and that's in John's Gospel. But before I start, I just want to ask us a question. Have you ever been surprised by God? Have you ever been surprised by God? So maybe you have been surprised by what God is like. You know, so maybe before you were a Christian or when you were early in your faith, maybe you thought that God was maybe uh, a distant God, a, a controlling God. Maybe that's what you thought like. And then on becoming a Christian or, or developing in your faith, you, you realise that actually he's not like that at all. Or maybe you um, are surprised by, by what he does. Maybe you read in the Bible and you, you kind of read in the Bible and you think, gosh, I'm surprised by that. Or maybe you're surprised by how he acts or what he does in the details of your life. Now, I had um, one such surprise over the summer, and it's all to do with my finances. Now, I didn't, didn't realise Tom was going to come up and speak about his finances. We don't talk about finances all the time in this church, but I had a surprise with my finances. I, I had moved home earlier in the year, and my finances just became unsettled. You know, um, uh, things were really tight. I had absolutely no margin absolutely no margin to play with. And the last thing that I wanted was a number of unforeseen costs. And you've guessed it, I had a number of unforeseen costs. And I had to cancel a trip and say no to doing things with friends and stuff like that. And I never really told anyone about this. I was never, never really talking about this. And one night I was kind of like stewing over this and then I got a message from a friend saying, give me your bank details. And he asked him why, and he said he's going to put some money in the account. So I gave him my bank details, as you would, and checked the next day, and there it was, a, a decent sum of money, which really, really helped me out. Now, that was a surprise. Um, and he, later that day, sent me another message, just sort of detailing why, why he did that. And basically, he got a tax rebate, and he felt God say to him, give that to Stan. Blessed stand with that. And so, I mean, I, it's a great surprise, and I was very blessed, and it really helped me out. But I felt sort of God remind me of a few things during that. You know, he says, you know, Stan, you know, I still got you, still got your back, still looking after you, still providing for you. I am your provider. And um, but it was a surprise, a pleasant surprise at the same time. Um, and part of me feels like, well, I shouldn't really be surprised by this because, you know, it says in the Bible, you know, God is our provider and that he will provide for our needs. And Jesus invites us to pray for our needs and that he will provide for them. And also, I've, you know, I've heard stories like this before. You know, I've heard stories of people, you know, that, that they need some money for whatever reason and God um, does something and people put money through their letterboxes, you know, um, 
People don't know who it is, you know, these um, anonymous gifts of money through letterboxes. And I have to say that my friend did want to be anonymous, um, but because of where I live in an apartment block, you have to go into the lobby, buzz into the lobby to, um, to get to my letterbox. So you can be anonymous, but for future reference, if anyone does want to bless me with money, uh, you just need to buzz on a different number. Say you've got an Amazon package for 99, and then they will let you in. Anyway, um, surprises. Surprises. I, I wanted to talk about surprises because every time I read the scripture, I am surprised. I'm surprised by, by, by Jesus. I'm surprised by Jesus and what he says and what he does. Anyway, so we're in the book of John. This is John 11. Um, I'm going to read a sizable bit of scripture, but it's worth it today. So we're going to read um, 1, 1 to 44. I might skip some. Um, follow along in your Bibles. I'm still a fan of uh, bringing the Bible and following along that, or follow along on your app, or it's going to come up behind us so you can follow along. And then on the back of that, I will pray. So, here we go. Ready? Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus, Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea, skipping to 11. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will, will he get better? Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, for, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us go, that we may die with him. <laughs> On his arrival... Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who, were, who had come along with her weeping also, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man? Could he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been in there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man came out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave coves and let him go. Okay, brilliant. Thanks for staying with me. I'm going to pray. Father God, Jesus, we... We love you, Lord. We, uh, we're here for you, Lord. We're here to receive what you would say to us today through the whole service and, and through what I've prepared, Lord God. And Father, I just pray for me as I speak and everyone else as they listen, Lord, that, that we would see you, Jesus, again. Yeah. Yeah. That we would see that who you are and that we would know who you are for us today. Pray for this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Now, surprise is a little bit of an understatement for this miracle, isn't it? It's a bit of an understatement. It's astonishing. And for them, it would have been unheard of. You know, they, don't have the, they didn't have the Bible. Uh, this would have been unheard of. And it's, there is no doubt that Lazarus was dead, that he was good as dead. John makes this clear. As Martha says, Lord, by this time, there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. So the body would have been buried, and it would have been decomposing enough that the King James Version of the Bible puts it like this. He says, by this time, he stinketh. <laughs> but it's a, it's, a, it's a remarkable scene, and it's hard to picture, isn't it? It's hard to picture. You know, it says, the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped in linen and cloth around his face. It's a remarkable picture. Um, they knew Jesus healed people. They knew that. They had seen that. But people don't rise from the dead, do they? And we know that now, don't we? We know that when people are dead, they do not come back. They, we know that now. They knew that then. They had faith for Jesus to heal him before he died, because both Martha and Mary say this, if you had been here, my brother would have lived, because Jesus would have gone and he would have healed, because that would be in his character to do so. And that would have saved them, the pain of death and burial. And no one asks Jesus to raise him from the dead, because that doesn't happen. Now, I began talking before about you know, being surprised by God. And it was, a, you know, my story was a good story, uh, but, and I had a good sense of what God was doing and saying to me and reminding me of. I had that sense. But I've also been surprised by God in other ways, which are a little bit harder to understand. You know, I've been surprised by, by what God has not done sometimes. You know, I often wonder why he hasn't answered some of my prayers, some of them I've been praying for for decades, literally. You know, why haven't my siblings become followers of Jesus? 
I've got three of them, and partners. What, why have they not become Christian? I've prayed, I've given them books, I've talked, I've brought them to church, I've invited them to Alpha. Why haven't they become followers of Jesus? And when I was younger, um, I, I prayed for my dad's job for years, and things didn't work out for him for a long time. And that affected lots of things. And, you know, um, we talk about it often, and we still don't quite know why things didn't work out as we wanted them to work out. And from the exchanges between Martha and Mary and Jesus, it's clear that these sisters also do not necessarily understand the whys or the whats either. But what the story is clear on is Jesus' love for both of them. In verse 5 it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Jesus was so close to these three siblings that they were practically family. And they knew he loved them. Martha says, you know, the Lord, the one you love is ill. The one you love is ill. The one you love being that title which is reserved for Jesus' closest friends. So that brings me to my first point, and I don't say this lightly, but Jesus' love allows delay, pain, and loss. Now, from verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days. And it's that little word, so, which is so significant and so surprising in this, isn't it? He loved them so, or he loved them, therefore he, he did not go to see them. That seems strange, doesn't it? It seems surprising. Surely it should read, surely it should read this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard Lazarus was sick, he went immediately. That's what it should read, surely. That's, that would be consistent with earlier readings. Surely he should say that. Then he could comfort them. Then he could perform the miracle. Then Lazarus would not die. And, you know, they would rejoice together and they would praise their father in heaven. Surely that's what it would be. And that's surprising. That's surprising every time I read it. You, now, you may have heard of the prosperity gospel, yeah? You, or the health and wealth gospel. It's a kind of input-output gospel where, you know, if you don't receive financial blessing or, or you're, you're not in good health, then clearly you are outside of God's will. And, you know, you know if you have faith and po- talk positively, give donations to the church, you will receive financial blessing. Um, we can be quick to notice that and dismiss that. But have you heard of the happiness gospel? Yeah, something we can maybe not explicitly believe, but subtly believe. You know, we can believe that if we follow Jesus and give our all for him, that everything will go well. That we, that we won't experience delay or struggle or even pain and loss. We can subtly believe that. And, you know, if things don't turn out okay, we, you know, we believe that things should turn out okay, that things should happen on time, that should be no struggle, no opposition, nothing unsettling happen. The problem is that when things do not go well, and we believe that, you know, when things go hard we can, and we experience pain and illness and sadness, we can get stuck there. We can get stuck. We can get sucked into a self-pity. We can stop living for Jesus or giving our all for him. In some circumstances, even, you know, people can lose their faith or deconstruct their faith or something along those lines. But this was never the promise of following Jesus, was it? It was never the promise, you know. And, and, and actually, in the Bible, it warns us that actually if we follow Jesus, you know, we will experience some trouble. But how do you deal with delay? How is that going for you when you have delay? How about pain and loss? How do we deal with that? Well, how do you help others when they are experiencing such things? You know, I find it difficult to know what to say sometimes, especially when there is pain and loss, and especially when people don't have that biblical framework for, for dealing with it. And one commentator writes... Philosopher Charles Taylor wrote in his book, A Secular Age, about how Western societies no longer view suffering as something that has a deeper meaning, but 
that their highest goal is to prevent suffering. When it does occur, we look to experts, psychological or medical treatment, or even to change public policy and law to ensure it won't happen again. To even hint that someone suffering could learn and take an inward journey is almost heretical in our line of thinking. Now, I'm all for preventing suffering by any means, and I'm all for some of the things mentioned in, in that quote. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But it is true, Western secular narratives, which we can believe, often give us very little when dealing with some of life's toughest challenges, like pain or loss or even death. And they borrow from religion. How many times have you heard someone who, who says, you know, they're not a Christian or not religious, everything happens for a reason, or, you know, they're in a better place. Where did they get that from? It's not consistent with their worldview. Now, Tim Keller, um, we're, we're here from a couple of times from him. He's a pastor in New York, and he's talking about this, this worldview of individualism or self-actualization. And he's talking in, a, in an American context, but it's relevant for us as well. He says this, we do not see serving God or the nation as more important than self-actualization. We do not see the claims of religion or national duty to overrule individual freedom or happiness. Our hope is now for individual freedom, to pursue our own individual ideas of good, and to discover our authentic selves. The great trouble with that story, however, is that it does not do what every other religion and worldview has done in the past. It cannot incorporate into itself and render meaningful the single most immutable and certain fact in life, death. And that brings on to our second point, that Jesus in the story, and Jesus for us, he comforts by drawing attention to himself, by drawing attention to who he is. As already mentioned, Martha and Mary, they say the same thing, don't they? They say, if you had been here, my brother would have not, not have died. Yet Jesus responds to each of them in a different way. And Tim Keller, again, in his book, Encounters, I think it's going to come up here, this book, Encounters, he, he, he talks about this. He says, when Martha speaks, he almost argues with her. Her message is, you came too late. But Jesus replies, I am the resurrection and the life. With me, it is never too late. The flow of her heart is towards despair, but Jesus is pushing against that flow. He's rebuking her doubt and giving her hope. Then he sees Mary, who says exactly the same thing. But this time, his response is the complete opposite. He doesn't argue. In fact, he is practically speechless. And instead of pushing against her heart's sadness, he enters it. He stands alongside her in her grief. He bursts into tears and says, only, where is he? Now, in this encounter, he's pointing to who he is. He's pointing to his identity. He's pointing to his character. And Tim Keller elaborates further in the chapter. He says that Martha, she receives the ministry of truth, while Mary, she receives the ministry of tears. And this is only possible when we have a Jesus who is both fully God and fully human. We look at the ministry of truth. We look at Martha's encounter. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, now Martha, she, she's confessing Jewish orthodoxy here. But Jesus says, probably the most important words, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He points to himself. He points, he talks about who he is and asks her, do you believe this? He doesn't reach out and give her a hug and cry with her, but he says, look at me, look at me, look at who I am. I am Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus knew what she 
needed to know the most. And the resurrection and the life, that's his claim to divinity. He's saying that I am the one that gives everything life and keeps everything alive. I am the one that can give life and take it away. Martha, you believe in orthodoxy, fine. Fine, you believe in orthodoxy, you believe in the right things, but, but do you believe this? Do you believe who I say I am? He's challenging her faith. And this is not the first time in the Gospels that Jesus makes claims to divinity. He, he claims that he, can, he, he, that he can forgive all sin, that all sin is against him because he is God. And in another encounter with Mary, he says, you know, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the truth, I am the life. And not only do we see his claims to divinity, but we see his numerous demonstrations of his divinity. All the miracles, and, and then obviously the healing, um, the, the raising of Lazarus. And maybe this is the faith challenge for you today. Perhaps you have some beliefs about God. Um, maybe you, you recognize Jesus you know, as a good teacher. You appreciate his teachings. You think they're great. But do you believe? Do you believe that this Jewish rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago was in fact God, that he is who he claims to be? When I was younger, my friends would give me a bit of a hard time about my faith and my belief in God, and they'd say stuff like, you know, well, where is your God? Where is your God? Why doesn't he just show himself? And I wish I had a decent reply at the time. I could have said, well, he has shown himself. You know, in many ways he has shown himself, but he has shown himself in the most significant way, in a way that we recognise in the person of Jesus. John, at the start of the Gospel, um, John's Gospel, he says, you know, the words which is Jesus became flesh, and made his dwelling amongst us. The God of all, the Logos of the word, the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together is Jesus. Do you believe this? Now, it's staggering to think that God, Jesus, would would, would take on a human body, isn't it? Uh, He would have felt the same things that we feel. He would have got tired. He would have got hungry. He would have needed a rest. You know, if he felt, if he dropped something on his toe, he would have felt pain. It would have hurt him. And he was deeply relational as well. You, you know, just see the friendships he's had, those deep friendships he had. He's deeply relational. Um, he was emotional, not in an unbalanced way, which we tend to use the word, but in a perfect way. Yeah. And Jesus would respond to people and how they were feeling. In our story, we've just got one sentence which says, Jesus wept. And then it moves on, he says, Jesus once more deeply moved. And he didn't just respond in the Gospels with those deeds of compassion, that that healings and stuff like that. He actually felt it, and he felt it deeply. There's an original Greek word in there. I couldn't say it, so it's not in there. But it refers to more than a passing pity. It refers to a depth of meaning where where the feelings churn within you, the feelings and the longings churn within you. And this is his ministry of tears. Because Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus. He says, I'm going there to wake him up. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus. He knew the outcome, but nevertheless, he entered into Mary's grief. He breaks down sobbing. His love pulls him into weeping with Mary. It's the ministry of tears. And this is who Jesus was for Mary, but it's also who Jesus is for us now. It's who Jesus is for us now. The Jesus we see in the Gospels, we read about in the Gospels, that is the Jesus for us now. Uh, last summer we did a, a series on Dane Orton's book, Gentle and Lowly, and just got a quote from here. 
And it says this, he goes, one implication of the truth of Christ's permanent humanity is that when we see the feelings and passions and the affections of the incarnate Christ towards sinners and sufferers as given to us in the four Gospels, we are seeing who Jesus is for us today. The Son has not retreated back into the disembodied divine state in which he existed before he took on flesh. Which is brilliant. Takes some getting your head around, but that is brilliant. That's who he is for us. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? How much he feels your grief, your sorrow, and your pain. In Hebrews, one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect being tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I'd also add to that, you know, he can sympathize with our pain because he has felt pain. And our rejection because he has felt rejection. And our suffering because he endured the hardest suffering. He knew all of these, and he is able to sympathize with us. And it goes on, it says, Let us then approach, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find great to help in our time of need. Now, this is what differentiates Christianity from all other religions and belief systems, because you don't get a distant God, which you might do in other religions. You don't have to borrow ideas from religions like you do with a Western secular Worldview, you don't have to empty yourself or find strength within yourself like you do with other philosophies. You get a person and you get Jesus. You get a Jesus who knows you and knows what you need, whether it's the ministry of truth or the ministry of tears, ministry of truth where you, you see just how glorious and how good and how powerful he is, or the ministry of tears when he comes and meets you in your time of needs. It can all be found in the personal Jesus at his throne of grace. And third point is that Jesus' love took him to the cross. In verse 38 it says, Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. Now both Tim Keller and Don Carson, who I read on this, make the point that in the original Greek uh, it's better translated as to bellow with anger or he was outraged. What is he angry at? What's he angry at? Well, he's angry at death. He's angry at the loss of life, the loss of loved ones. He's incensed as it's not the world that he created. It's not the world that he intended. He didn't intend a world full of sickness and suffering and death. And that's why he's angry. And why is the world like that? Well, it's like that because of sin. Romans says, you know, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people, because all sinned. And we know the world isn't great at the moment, don't we? We know that world isn't great from, you know, human rights abuses to wars to a crisis of leadership closer at home. We know the world is not as it should be or as it could be. We know that. And in some cases, you know, the evil is clear to see. You know, the self-serving motives are obvious in some cases. But I can get nervous talking about an angry Jesus. But Dane Orland says this again, a compassionless Christ would never get angry at the injustices in the world. But a Jesus full of compassion would. And we've got to acknowledge these two, that his compassion and his anger come together. If we emphasise his anger, we neglect his compassion Likewise, if we emphasise his compassion, we neglect his anger. They come together. 
But so much of the evil in the world that grieves the heart of Jesus is a result of humans. Human greed, human cruelty, human selfishness. It's easy, easy to see that in others out there. It's much harder to see it within ourselves, isn't it? It's much harder to admit our fault and our contribution to our little worlds not being as Jesus intended. Now, the display of power and authority that raised Jesus from the dead, that miracle was the one which incensed the religious leaders at the time because it says from that day onwards they plotted to take his life. But this was no surprise for Jesus because he knew why he had come. He came not to bring judgment but to bear it. And that's what he did when he laboured on the cross. He took the judgment for our sin and the sin of the whole world. And on being raised from the dead by the power of God, he conquered sin and death together. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? Okay, it's got a bit more, but if the musicians come up, that'd be good. So do you believe this? And I just feel, I've just been sort of praying over the week and I'm wondering how, and I do this over the week, is just believe that this is the same question for us today in lots of different ways. Do we believe this? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? You know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He displayed his authority over all things, even life and death. You know, they saw his glory. But I want to ask you the question, you know, what in your life needs raising? What in your life is, is dead? What in your life is, is laying in that tomb that Jesus needs to wake up, that Jesus needs to breathe his life into? You know, maybe there's a calling on your life. You know, Jesus has got a calling on your life and it's laying dead. It's in that tomb at the moment. Maybe there's a gifting which you used to operate in or a gifting which you know you have and that needs to be revived and that needs to be used. Maybe it's that faith muscle. You know, you used to believe God for things. You used to take risks and believe God for things. You know, that faith muscle you used to use, but that's wasting away and that is lying dead. A couple of weeks ago, Christopher preached and at the start of his preach, he gave his story of how he became a Christian. And I loved how he put it. He goes, you know, what, you know, I went to bed an unbeliever and I woke up the next day a believer. I loved how he do it because what Jesus did is he, he breathed life into him. He, he, he caused new life. He, he, Christopher was spiritually dead and then he was made a believer. He was spiritually alive. And this is what Jesus does. Do we believe this? Do we believe? Do I believe this? I've been challenged by this. Do I believe this? Do I believe this again? for my family and friends, despite the setbacks I have. Now, it's very interesting where, what Christopher also said about this. He goes, I don't think it was his main point. It was a passing comment, maybe, but he says, you know, people had been praying for me. When he became a Christian, people had been praying for me. And Nicky Gumbel says this as well. You know, when people... He's the person who does the Alpha course, and he says, you know, when people become Christians, there's always people praying for them. There's people who are believing that Jesus is who he says he is. People believing that he can resurrect a spiritually dead person cause them to become Christians and spiritually alive. Do I believe this myself? 
Am I praying to the one who holds this sovereignly in his hands, the power over life and death and our spirits? Now, at the men's breakfast, our speaker, Joel, said that church in the UK, so he's a good speaker and he's got, he travels around sort of different churches, but he said the church in the UK needs to take more risks. Yeah, the church in the UK just plays it too safe. It doesn't step out. And he gave a few sort of consequences of this. You know, that there was a, there's a church and they just couldn't find a leader for it because, you know, there wasn't any sort of raising up of leaders or enough raising up of leaders. Um, and when I say the church, you know, I'm talking about us. You know, it's not the establishment. It's not the building. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not the elders or the employees. You know, it's us. We are the church. You know, when you step out for God, when, when you've done things for God, you know, there can be def- difficulty. There can be a struggle. There can, can be a pain when following Jesus and stepping out for him. That's true. When you give your money, you know, they, 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 you know, you know, things don't always go as you think they might. When you seek to tell others, you sometimes get pushback. When you follow your call, it doesn't always go well. And Joel yesterday kind of linked sort of this stepping out, these acts of faith, this living for God, these praying these big prayers, you know, it can lead to a type of suffering, you know, because it brings a pressure. Uh, there's consequences. And there's that fear of disappointment which can overwhelm. When I first moved to Cheltenham, you know, I had a real sort of feeling that God was in this move. A few things came together, had some prophetic words and circumstances lined up and I moved and I felt God was in it. But when I came here, some things went well, and I'm talking about the whole of life here, not, not just which church, but some things did not go well for me. Yeah? There were some disappointments, there were some conflicts, felt misunderstood, things didn't all go well. And if we're not careful, if we don't take these things to Jesus, you know, cynicism and unbelief, can creep into our hearts. We can hear these things, people saying, yeah, step out, believe big, pray big, give, and all that stuff, and then we kind of look at ourselves and we think, oh, no thanks, I've just got this in my heart. Unbelief, cynicism, unforgiveness, disappointment. But I believe that that is where God wants to minister to us today, at his throne of grace. Because at his throne of grace, there is mercy and there is favour in our time of need. And I was going to ask, you know, do you need the ministry of truth or do you need the ministry of tears? We need both, don't we? Don't we need both? We need that glorious picture of who Jesus is. We need to believe this. We need to believe that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is before all sorts of things. But we also need his ministry of tears, his ministry of coming alongside us in a very real way where he is our friend and he is our lover and he is our healer and he is our comforter. We need both. Both the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.